the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark chapter 1 verse 3. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please bless me as I preach. Please guide my words and my thoughts to rightly bring out the wonders and the riches of your holy word for the building up of your holy people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to simply unpack two things this morning. Uh, the location of John the Baptist's ministry uh, and the message encapsulated in this prophecy from Isaiah that was John's message. And I want to do so with an eye to the truth that every detail in Scripture is meaningful. That there's not a word, there's not a letter of a word. Jesus even said there's not even a tiny mark on a letter of a word that is superfluous or random, meaningless. It's all meaningful. Every word was chosen by God to be there as his uh, eternal communication to us. Meaningful, though, only if we pay attention. Uh, the little details will pass us by if we read too fast. So I want to zoom in, for instance, uh, as an instance of this, on just this location detail of the wilderness. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Or the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. A geographical description, but I offer to you a theological one as well. Think for just a moment where the wilderness has played in a crucial geographic setting for God's people in the past. Immediately upon the exodus out of Egypt, right? That was sort of the, um, that's the first, the, the sort of signified layer of meaning with this place of the wilderness, a place of a new beginning after centuries in slavery, a place where God himself will be your immediate provider with manna. A place where God himself will show up because only a few weeks into the wilderness wanderings and they're at Sinai and God shows up on Sinai and the mountain trembles. I'm all of a sudden doubting myself if it was with a few weeks. Maybe it was a few days. We studied this last year. Was it days or weeks? Days. Okay, well, Mike taught that lesson. So anyway, so I was looking at Mike. It was, it was either days or weeks, but it was not long as they're in the wilderness when God himself showed up in glory and power and majesty and communication giving the holy law to Moses for God's people. So that's what wilderness connotes to a Jewish hearer, and we should catch in the, as the Holy Spirit is guiding Mark's penning of this gospel, giving us this indicator of who is this person. That just so, in the inauguration of the new covenant, to mark the first advent of the Son of God in the flesh, wilderness is the appropriate place. It communicates God's about to show up. A new day is about to dawn. Miraculous provision of food is about to happen. It's actually a literary clue to us that this man from Nazareth that Mark is introducing to us readers is far more than meets the eye. This um, little detail also applies to us for our lives because all of the righteous saints in the Bible are held up as models for us to emulate empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the church in her wisdom has really distilled two out of the New Testament, two followers of Christ who are sort of universal um, icons of what it looks like to follow Jesus nearly. And you see this all throughout Western art, if you notice. Um, two figures, the Blessed Virgin Mary and John the Baptist. If you go to any of the old churches in Europe, you'll see a crucifix, and on one side you'll see Mary, and the other side you'll see John the Baptist. Because these are 
sort of arch pictures of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And just as John the Baptist was the herald of Christ's first coming, we Christians, in imitation of him, are called to be heralds of Christ's second coming. This point gets driven home. For those of you who pray, I know many of you pray morning prayer frequently as part of your devotional life. What do we pray every morning prayer? The canticle of Zechariah. The prayer that Zechariah prayed over his newborn son, John the Baptist. And that line in there, you, my child, shall be prophet of the Most High. Right? We don't pray that every day just to remember John the Baptist. We pray that every day because we, as followers of Christ, inherit that call. You, children of God, will proclaim, will prepare the way for the Most High. Not for his first coming, already happened, for his second coming. And the wilderness, the wilderness location of John the Baptist's ministry is a meaningful detail to us seeking to live the Christian life. The choice to live in the wilderness is sort of an extreme instance that if we kind of boil down what, it, what is it accomplishing essentially, it's um, a temporary kind of withdrawal from people and um, choosing to forego the luxuries that you can enjoy in the city. I mean, John really forewent them, right? Locusts and, and wild honey. Has anyone ever tried a locust? Me neither. Um, I can't imagine they taste very good. The, um, but this idea, this withdrawal from people and from luxury, this is the very um, life practice, the spiritual discipline that the church invites us into in these seasons of preparation, Advent and Lent. I think it's a bit easier in Lent because we don't have this strange specter that we now have of cultural Christmas sort of preemptively kind of fully washing on the shores of Advent and we're already being, being invited into a feasting season with all the chocolates that are for sale at Kroger and all the fancy things. So it's hard to keep some of this wilderness mindset, this second coming mindset, this John the Baptist mindset in Advent. I think it's especially hard now in our cultural setting. So I offer to you, rather than give up on the goal entirely, to just think of really small goals. I mean, mine are embarrassingly small. <laughs> but just to think, well, rather than eating three chocolates, I'll just have one. And that seems like the tiniest, most pitiful offering, and it is. But no offering to the Lord is too small. Right? A cup of cold water to a little one is remembered forever, apparently, the Lord says. So if it's a moment of just a tiny bit of not hidden, not noticeable by others' selflessness, say, well, my sweet tooth and by nature my caloric need, three, three chocolates would be no problem. But just say, I'm just going to what? And to offer it immensely to the Lord, a tiny taste of pulling back from the luxury of the world in Advent season. A tiny momentary reminder in the midst of the day that we too are preparing our hearts and our minds for the second coming of our Savior. A tiny little bit of wilderness in the midst of an opulent Advent culture. So much for the location of John the Baptist, his wilderness setting. What about the message? Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Um, this is, I think, a especially cryptic metaphor in our era of infrastructure. Right? When we think of roads, we think of these enormous... Do you know the U.S. interstate system is the largest piece of infrastructure on the planet? More tons of concrete than anything that man has ever built. Um, 
when we think of roads, we think of these enormous infrastructural objects with tons of teams of people to maintain it. You know, we, we don't even think about maintaining roads. That's just something that other people organized by other government officials do. But in the ancient world, especially in the age of Isaiah when this prophecy came, you had to maintain the local highways by hand. Right? Yes, there were the Roman roads, but those were just a couple freeways. But most of the roads, they were up to the locals to keep, to keep up. So as with everything in this mortal world, there's deterioration. Right? Floodwaters come in, wash in a gully, which becomes a small valley. Landslides, just different erosion. Roads, well, however much sort of the footpath was initially straight, become more and more crooked and more and more dilapidated unless you care for them. And so sort of road maintenance was an ordinary part of like... Um, keeping things going in the ancient world. If you didn't keep things going, you just had to adapt the footpath, right? So if there's some big landslide, well, now we're walking around that thing. And what was once a straight road now has a curve in it. So if you keep that in the backdrop of your mind, you can kind of see what the prophet is getting at more clearly. Think about what we heard from Isaiah. This image of like mountains being brought low and valleys being filled in and crooked things being made straight. Talking about getting rid of all of this decay and making this sort of blazing straight trail, this clear path by which the, to welcome the coming of the Lord, the way in which in the ancient world you would welcome, you would make a new highway when the king was scheduled to come. That's this picture that is picked up on that the Spirit shows Mark. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's fulfilling this prophecy of, of Elijah, getting things ready for Jesus' coming, priming people's minds for the call to repentance, a message that Jesus himself picked up. But there's one particular aspect of kind of the image of a messy, decayed road that I want to highlight this morning. And it's what I think Peter is picking up on in, in the reading from Second Peter that we heard. Which is that um, obstacles in the road obscure the view down the road in both directions. Right? You can't see who's coming. And the person who's coming can't see you if there's all these sort of boulders and landslides and valleys kind of messing up the road. Uh, between the two of you. In St. Peter's image of our Lord's second coming, there's this vision of all of these sort of visual barriers being blown away in the great fire of the Last Judgment. We've been studying this on Monday nights, the great conflagration. And part of what it accomplishes is the burning away of things that we would hide behind. These sort of illusory shelters, just like Adam and Eve in the garden kind of sowing fig leaves. Things set up where we're kind of thinking like, oh, well, maybe God doesn't see this if I kind of don't know if I don't tell anybody if I don't think about it too much. One application of making God's path straight, I offer you this interpretation, is um, get rid of the things that you're hiding behind in the face of God, whatever it may be that you've constructed to your mind. Be done with the illusion that he can't see every thought, every flinch of the will, every movement of the heart. He sees it all. It's, it's us pretending to hide, right? Like Adam and Eve. He sees it all. But as long as we, with our will, are trying to sort of hide a portion of our lives and think about the different sectors of your life, the different rooms you're in, the different people you're with, the different callings you're inhabiting, it's only we who suffer by kind of trying to keep it hidden from him. And it's going to be exposed on the last day anyways. What's done in secret will be yelled from the rooftops. Another way of describing the same truth. But God invites us, and especially in this Advent season, 
the things we would try and keep in the shadow, kind of out of view of, an approaching, of the approaching Christ. He says, bring it into his light. Make the path straight. Get rid of that obstacle. Let him see you. Accept his loving gaze, his fearsome and loving gaze, his acceptance of you in the beloved Jesus Christ. And be cleansed that he might see you, that you might see him. And in that process, the wonderful thing is an obstacle in the road removed in your heart and life is a benefit to us perfectly. Your life becomes a more clear highway for, what the, for the Lord's coming. That we can more clearly Christians who have brought their life more fully before the Lord a picture of what the Lord is like. We can see him more clearly down the road, as it were. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Amen.